Chapter Seven of the Women Who Make Our Novels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Women Who Make Our Novels by Grant Overton. Chapter Seven. Margaret Deland. Edith Wharton at fifty-six does a work of mercy in France. Margaret Deland is similarly engaged at sixty-one. That speaks so much more loudly than their books, and their books are not silent. If the band of a Kilty regiment plays, the Campbells are coming. One of them may be Margareta Wade Campbell Deland. Mrs. Deland was born in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, February twenty-third. 1857 her parents died while she was very young and she was reared in the family of an uncle Benjamin Campbell who lived in Manchester then a suburb of Allegheny and the original old Chester of mrs. Deland's famous and loved stories our home mrs. Deland once wrote was a great old-fashioned country house built by English people among the hills of western Pennsylvania more than a century ago there was a stiff prim garden with box hedges and closely clipped evergreens in front of the garden were terraces and then meadows stretching down to the ohio river which bent like a shining arm about the circle of the western hills which bent like a shining arm about the circle of the western hills beautiful simile in this old garden the little girl played the greater part of her waking hours she loved the outdoors she was highly impressionable and imaginative she had the curious and dear convictions of childhood she was sure that the whole of asia was a yellow land because the map of asia in her old dog-eared geography was colored yellow her first taste in reading was formed upon ivanhoe and the talisman and tales of a grandfather Hawthorne stories and the works of Washington Irving her first and indeed her final experience of life Was that summed up in Stevenson's saying and the greatest adventures are not those we go to seek Mrs. Deland expressed it this way not the prominent events nor the catastrophes Nor the very great pleasures not the journeys nor the deprivations but the commonplaces of everyday life determine what a child shall do and still more positively determine what he shall be in one word character and it is with character almost solely that mrs deland as a writer has been preoccupied dr lavender is a study in character so is helena ritchie so is the iron woman and the young people that surround her are character studies of a completeness unexcelled in American fiction there is more than one way of dealing with character in fiction but first we must settle what we mean by character we mean concisely inherited traits as affected by environment environment includes people as well as things it is impossible to make a character study convincing without taking heredity into account and this irrespective of whether heredity or environment plays the greater role in a mortal's life 
the eternal controversy as to which of these two influences is preponderant is largely futile because the preponderance differs with various persons differs with the traits inherited differs with a thousand differing pressures of circumstance one thing is certain whether anything is known about an individual's inherited endowment or not we always and inescapably assume that he has one the best handy illustration of this is jenny gushing in mary s watt's book the rise of jenny gushing nothing whatever is known by us regarding jenny gushing's inheritance we don't know her parentage any more than she does her environment we know with awful exactitude and we are perfectly conscious that it fails utterly to explain her except of course her marvelous and painfully acquired gift of reticence we are forced therefore to presuppose in her case an inheritance of extraordinary willpower and extraordinary sensitiveness to beauty in any of its forms and we do presuppose it it makes her wholly credible more credible probably than any careful account of a forebears could have made her now in the iron woman indisputably mrs deland's finest story we get both heredity and environment exactly known and precisely compounded indeed if mrs deland's great novel has a fault it is the fault of giving us more knowledge than should be ours her people are so complete that there is no unknown quantity in the equation they make it is just a trifle too good to be true too lifelike to be convincing knowing to the last inch what they are as we know our neighbors of long standing we know to the last degree what they will do under what circumstances they will do it how they will do it and what the result upon them and upon others just as minutely known will be to see sarah maitland and the boy blair is like watching a terrible and inevitable and perfectly anticipated tragedy approaching in the house next door listen but after a breathless six months of partnership in business if in nothing else herbert maitland leaving behind him his little two-year-old nanny and an unborn boy of whose approaching advent he was ignorant got out of the world as expeditiously as consumption could take him indeed his wife had so jostled him and deafened him and dazed him that there was nothing for him to do but die so that there might be room for her expanding energy yet she loved him nobody who saw her in those first silent agonized months could doubt that she loved him her pain expressed itself not in moans or tears or physical prostration but in work work which had been an interest became a refuge under like circumstances some people take to religion and some to drink as mrs maitland's religion had never been more than church-going and contributions to foreign missions it was of course no help under the strain of grief and as her temperament did not dictate the other means of consolation she turned to work she worked herself numb very likely she had hours when she did not feel her loss but she did not feel anything else not even her baby's little clinging hands or his milky lips at her breast she did her duty by him 
she hired a reliable woman to take charge of him and she was careful to appear at regular hours to nurse him she ordered toys for him and as she shared the naive conviction of her day that church-going and religion were synonymous she began when he was four years old to take him to church in her shiny shabby black silk which had been her sunday costume ever since it had been purchased as part of her curiously limited trousseau she sat in a front pew between the two children and felt that she was doing her duty to both of them a sense of duty without maternal instinct is not perhaps as baleful a thing as maternal instinct without a sense of duty but it is sterile and in the first few years of her bereavement the big suffering woman seemed to have nothing but duty to offer to her child nanny's puzzles began then why don't mamma hug my baby brother she used to ask the nurse who had no explanation to offer the baby brother was ready enough to hug nanny and his eager wet little kisses on her rosy cheeks sealed her to his service while he was still in petticoats blair was three years old before under the long atrophy of grief sarah maitland's maternal instinct began to stir when it did she was chilled by the boys shrinking from her as if from a stranger she was chilled too by another sort of repulsion which with the hideous candor of childhood he made no effort to conceal one of his first expressions of opinion had been contained in the single word ugly accompanied by a finger pointed at his mother whenever she sneezed and she was one of those people who cannot or do not moderate a sneeze blair had a nervous paroxysm he would jump at the unexpected sound then burst into furious tears when she tried to draw his head down upon her scratchy black alpaca breast he would say violently no 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 at which she would push him roughly from her knee and fall into hurt silence she took blair's little chin in her hand a big beautiful powerful hand with broken and blackened nails and turning his wincing face up rubbed her cheek roughly against his get over your airs she said it is we repeat exactly like living next door to the family and with a procession of the years collecting innumerable little incidents and observed facts all piecing accurately together it is not fiction at all it is biography the best and brightest and most instructive kind of biography what is the difference between fiction and biography principally it consists only in this that in the case of the life of an actual man the biographer is under no necessity of explaining or reconciling his apparent contradictions we know the man lived and that he was capable of those contradictions if the biographer can reconcile or explain them offering an acceptable and plausible theory to account for them very well we are grateful but it is not imperative that he should do so what is imperative is that he should set down a faithful record of the contradictions themselves for we can then having the evidence before us frame our own theories to account for them in writing fiction or fictional biography the author's main struggle is for plausibility 
if his character does perplexing and contradictory things the author feels that he must make them entirely understandable or we will not accept the character and in this he is generally right human nature is human nature what we take at the hands of life we are forced to take and make the best of but we won't take the same things from a novel because we aren't compelled to we insist that the novelist make everything clear and under this great compulsion the novelist is always working the result is not always happy compulsions however desirable in general remain laws of force compulsory education compulsory fiction there are cases where both work badly where both do serious ill considered as fiction the iron woman is vitiated ever so slightly by the painful consciousness that we have required every person in it to be explained to us too fully a requirement to which mrs deland has obediently conformed no mystery no magic of the unknown invests the story we have only to watch these people take their appointed courses to an appointed end we read eagerly and with a sense of uncertainty not as to what the outcome will be but as to whether mrs deland will dare will dare to break the law of the fictioneer she does not and thereby throws her book over into the field of biography what you say did these people actually live of course they lived if you mean were there originals for all of them we cannot say probably there were but you must remember that the novelist who works from an original a living person hardly ever takes that person as he is usually some addition and subtraction goes on without doubt this was the case here when we speak of the iron woman as biography the best and brightest of biography we mean simply this the studies of the people in it are too minute for fiction and the people themselves are over plausible the writer's effort to make them plausible has gone so far and been so successful as to defeat her end the wealth of detail with which she enriches her splendid story makes it a biography or a cluster of biographies and considered as biographies these people are a vivid success and all that extreme plausibility we have noted all that conscientious dovetailing of traits and circumstance falls lightly and easily and beautifully into place as the brilliant and convincing effort of a biographer to explain her people reconcile their self-contradictions put them in the right light before the world in the light in which they saw themselves and in which they saw each other we are not trying to be ingenious nor to find in mrs deland's work something which is not there we have no patience with artificiality in dealing with these matters we are simply trying to account for the feeling that sweeps over us as we reread the iron woman a feeling which we believe most of those who reread the book will share and we venture to think that in this attempt to solve our feelings about mrs deland's biggest novel we have solved the peculiarity of all her exquisite work she is the ideal biographer as supporting evidence to the case we have made 
we hope it is a decent case we call attention to her old chester books and stories in the awakening of helena ritchie in old chester tales in dr lavendar's people in the mall in all her work we believe that the reader who takes the biographical standpoint will find the fullest satisfaction it will be a full satisfaction indeed mrs deland is one of the ablest writer america has produced so far we will allow her to be a genius if genius is after all merely the capacity for taking infinite pains and exhibiting an infinite comprehension of and sympathy with simple and memorable lives books by margaret deland good for the soul the rising tide r j s mother the way to peace where the laborers are few john ward preacher the old garden and other verses philip and his wife florida days sydney the story of a child the wisdom of fools mr tommy dove and other stories old chester tales dr lavendar's people the common way 1904 the awakening of helena ritchie 1906 an encore 1907 the iron woman 1911 partners 1913 the hands of esau 1914 around old chester 1915 published by harper and brothers new york end of chapter 7